With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Hey everybody, uh, this is Out of Darkness in the Light, and I'm talking to Nathan, and he's up in his uh, vehicle delivering something somewhere. I don't know the details, but uh, we've been talking a while here about some pretty esoteric stuff. And uh, it's 4th of July, and there's fireworks in the background. So um, I'm glad we pushed the record button, because I'm kind of curious what this will sound like, Nathan. But he's going well, uh, to go over a mountain pass, and so he's, uh, he's going to have to check out here. So We're supposed to get back in maybe like an hour and a half and talk some more. So anyway. Well, I got a load of uh, salmon. The fish are running, and so we're, we've been staging all these trailers, and uh, now I'm hauling it back to distribute to the masses. Anyway, uh-huh. well, we were talking a little bit about the ancient of days and uh, the connection with Jesus. You know, I don't know how much you want to give any. Nathan is a Mormon, by the way. If you haven't heard previous podcasts, neither one of them are up. Uh, the first one, I want to split it in two, and that's why it hasn't been put up yet, and uh, that's all I want to do to it. I just haven't got around to that yet. And then we have another one in room two. But, uh, yeah, so you're a Mormon, so go ahead. Yeah, um, so I, I, I talked earlier about, you know, when you were kind of sharing some ideas, you know, something popped into my mind and this question that I've had for a while, so I kind of wanted to know what your thoughts were. And I mean, I'm 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 gonna just read it. It's like ten verses or so, um, but just I'll give you some background. This is. Are you uh, talking about uh, the higher self doctrine? Not really. It's more the well. It's the it's the Father and the Son being the same. Oh, okay. For one. Um. Kind of well, this is very interesting. I just forgot about this. Okay. But um. Wow. This is just blowing my mind. I forgot about this. But um, people are ignoring this old Christology that Joseph Smith had. Um, it's kind of like, you know, Origin's concept of the future. It's like, it's, it's difficult for people to comprehend it, so they, they don't understand it. And I think the same thing may be happening here. Um, I'm actually familiar with this, and um, I need to do more research on it. But um, the doctrine that I'm talking about is, is, is nothing that people are familiar with. They're not discussing it. You know what I mean? It doesn't fall into the, into the classic Christologies. It's, it's actually not condemned at any church council. This is the view that I hold to, and I believe that the reason why it's not mentioned in the church council is because they don't want people to know about it. They just want to sink it and make you forget about it, because if you put it in a church council, there's some things they want to condemn, and there's some things they don't want to talk about at all, because that will just bring attention. They don't want a discussion. You know what I mean? They just want to right. uh, cloak it. 
sometimes they do that. They don't always condemn everything. People are not thinking about this. They don't always condemn everything. Sometimes, See, in the medieval era, they had the ability to just completely sink things and make them disappear. And uh, it's just, well, I never even heard of that, about that before. You know, that's right. Um, if you look around, you'll see traces of it in the ancient world. So I'm actually aware of this, so this is kind of interesting. Well, I don't know what you think I'm going to be talking about, but... Uh, oh, well, let me just say one more thing before you say what you're going to yeah, say. What this view is, is that um, this is this is not have anything to do with modalism, or what's commonly uh, found in oneness Pentecostalism. This, that would... That would not be correct to classify this, okay? What what you have is that um, the Son of God is truly begotten as a second coexistent being, but he emerges out of the Father like an emanation and um, exists as a separate being. And then there's different views, like I talked with Nathan before. Uh, like I said, if you had the, somebody t- brought this doctrine 500 years ago, as time went by, you'd have different theological camps, and some people would say that they continue through all eternity as two ex- coexistent beings. Another group would say that eventually they're blended together. Or they can be blended together temporarily, then they become coexistent again, like a third camp, you know what I mean? So that's basically it in a nutshell, but go ahead. I, I believe that Joseph Smith taught this, according to my estimation, a, a form of this. So, Yes, and and one thing that I've learned as I've just thought about all these things is it's not what you see at face value. You know, you, you think that you know what he's saying, but you don't know. And, and, and uh, I mean, it's, it's just, it's not necessarily what your preconceived ideas will just immediately tell you it's, it's it's there has to be like a certain key of understanding which I feel like I, I am getting from you so I appreciate that. Uh-huh. Uh, but anyway, so okay, I don't normally read the, the section headings because they're they're interpolations. Is that is this uh, out of the Book of Mormon or something else? This is out of the the Doctrine and Covenants. That's right. Okay. Um, this is section twenty seven. Uh, but I'll, I'm just going to read the, the section heading just to give you a better background than I could give you. Just before you uh, read that, I've already said that um, he, he and I are looking at this material from totally different perspectives. I'm saying that um, truths were taken away from Christians, and they were put into these writings and other writings that are like them historically, you know, like Gnosticism or the Kabbalah. And these are things that, that that they were commonly found in the ancient Hebrew religion, and uh, they took them away from Christians, and they put them in a context that Christians cannot embrace. That's my theory. I know you don't agree with me. I'm just saying. No, no, no. Actually, I've I've thought quite a bit about that. And now, that. the reason that I'm saying this because this makes things very interesting. I'm saying that there's truth in these documents that Christians don't have, but. You and I disagree about why the truth is there. So, that makes Maybe it interesting, not, so go ahead. I don't want yeah, people I mean, to believe, think that I believe the doctrine of the covenants. They'll think I'm going off the deep end. Go yeah, ahead. Yeah, yeah. No, you couldn't do you can But I'm saying there's truth in there. Right, right. 
Well, Go let ahead. me read it, and then you just yeah. tell me. I mean, I feel free to pick out. Hey, that's just total false, or if you know, I mean, you can explain it, or if it fits into what you're explaining, it helps me understand it better. I just, I just, basically, I found it interesting what you're saying, and um, I haven't got a chance to read it, so I'm going to read it right now to you. Mm-hmm. Anyways. Uh, so there's a revelation given to Joseph Smith, the prophet at Harmony, Pennsylvania, August 1830, in preparation for a religious service at which the sacrament of bread and wine was to be administered. Joseph set out to procure wine. He was met by a heavenly messenger and received this revelation, a portion of which was written at the time and the remainder in the September following. It doesn't say that the remainder was added to um not necessarily by Joseph Smith. It was added to by like uh, Oliver Cowdery mainly, but there was other people that were involved in his inner circle that kind of took license and just added things to the revelation. So, I mean, I don't read the revelations as this is exactly what is true because I haven't really been able to go through and really just separate all the additions for the original book of commandments and all the, Revelation. I mean, there's just so much there, so I just read it and try and understand it by the spirit. Can I ask of you a couple quick questions just before. Yeah. Okay, I can't prove it, but I believe that the original Christian manuscripts were infallibly inspired. Um, how do you look at those scriptures? Do you, do you believe that the original, uh, like Protestant canon manuscripts, were originally inspired, or do you have a different interpretation of inspiration? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, as you, the further back you go, I mean, when you're talking about Genesis and Exodus, um, yeah. I think that those are, they just have suffered more changes. I'm, talking about, do, see, I'm talking about originally, though. Oh, originally? Yeah, yeah. Originally, yeah. Okay, now, this is interesting. So, do you hold these scriptures on the same level originally or on a different level? I hold these scriptures on the same level. Uh, see, the, it's the terminology okay. script, scripture, uh-huh. because if it's, I believe scripture is what is um, in. I mean, in the w- within the scriptures. Um, what did Peter say? The scriptures aren't by any interpretation, only by the Spirit, or something like that. Uh, mm-hmm. If if it's if you speak it in the Spirit. Each one of the words says have no private interpretation. Yeah, I mean, the the scriptures are inspired, but they were written by men, and and so then time changed. It, it, but what the spirit will open them up to you, and but if you read um, some of the apostles quoting the Old Testament and the scripture, that the way that they're quoting it varies from the way that it's read in our scripture. You can see that it, they've used they use it for different meanings. They understand it differently in certain situations. They'll change the words in order to make it fit their situation. And then it also they it was written in most cases to apply to the people at the time. But what I found is more so to apply you know to basically us today because that's who would have it. So. Okay. Yes and no. I mean, you do believe that these uh, uh, documents were inspired on the same level originally? Yeah, I believe okay. like okay. if a, if an angel came and said, you know, write this, 
Um, or I'm not exactly sure what the process was for him to just pick up a pen and start writing or just dictate it to somebody like thus saith the Lord, blah, 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 blah. But, um, uh, some of these things, I mean, his knowledge of the scriptures, like the Bible, um, is pretty profound. Uh, you don't really have an appreciation for it until you start delving into it. I mean, I don't, I've never had as much respect for the Bible as I should have. I, lately, having, you know, learned some things from you, and I've gone in, I read Daniel last night, and I've been reading Zechariah, and I read the Law of Moses for the first time. I mean, what's my problem? I never even read the Law of Moses, but yet I claim to, yeah. like, you talk to about this some of these freedom. things. It'd make great audio. Yeah. Yeah, Talk. no, that's why I think, um, that's why I just wanted to read the, the scriptures because the scriptures, they say it better than I could say it. And in fact, um, I believe this, but I'm not, sh- I'm not sure because I haven't had an angel come and expound the scriptures. But many times in the scriptures, when angels come to men, they're expounding on the scriptures, quoting scriptures, explaining things using scriptures. If you don't read them, you're not going to know what they're talking about. They're not even going to, why would they come and explain the scriptures if you don't have a question about them or trying to understand? Now, my view is that the Bible doesn't even define what scripture is and also doesn't define inspiration. It just mentions the word scripture. I See, I believe that we had a lot of supporting texts and traditions that and we've lost them all. I actually believe we lost them. This massive uh, cataclysm of fire destroyed the manuscripts. That's a very interesting view. How it would affect I believe, manuscripts. I, they weren't in caves. They didn't survive. Yeah, the Book of Mormon has led me to believe that there was a cataclysm. And then of uh, recent, I came across a book called the Aquaton, Ang Aquaton. It's a Filipino kind of Book of Mormon, pretty much. Did you mention this I, to me before? Uh, I sent it to you in an email, just a link. Um, oh, that's but, right. I started looking it's into pretty, that. It's a pretty interesting book. I mean, I've I've thought I've had lots of thoughts about it. Mm-hmm. It explains a lot to me, you know. Um, but the, there's some interesting things that I'm not quite sure about when it comes to that book. But either way, I mean, I do think that there's going to be lots of scriptures coming out um, soon. I've been, mm-hmm. that's kind of what I've been looking for. I talk about waiting for angels and, you know, entering into, like, the presence of God himself. Well, let's but, just be um, upfront about this, okay? Yeah. I don't have to belabor this point, but, I mean, I, there's all these scriptures out there. I believe they're all forgeries. Uh, you know, have you ever heard of, um, like, um, the Coburn Bible? You ever heard about that? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's really intriguing. But I mean, Dave believes yeah. it's a forgery. I believe that all the Gnostic texts are forgeries. I believe that you know the Kabbalah is a forgery. I mean, this is kind of a a broad classification. I mean, the Talmud was. I think Satanists are doing all this stuff, and they're putting truth in these texts, uh, knowing that Christians will reject them because um, of the context that they're presented. And because um, the most effective method to get somebody to reject anything is what's called guilt by association. I've proven this myself over the years, and I still fall for it over and over again. Yeah, I'm just saying no, this for my Christian audience. I don't want yeah. them to believe that I'm believing these things. But I, I right. said that there's truth in them. Yeah. So that's what we have in common. Neither you or I can infallibly prove either of these points according to Dave, <laughs> see, I cannot prove 
infallibly prove that um, Joseph Smith, this is very interesting because you'll never hear Chris say that, did not receive these things from some kind of um, celestial being. God, see, I have a concept of gray angels. Let's say he got it from a gray angel. He never talks about that. For some purpose that um, we can't really comprehend, because nobody's even thought about it yet, you know? I mean, there's a view out there that he's he was a fraud, and he was um, involved with... Charlatan. Taking a charlatan, him and his dad, and they were involved with, like, water witchery and stuff like that, and they would um, take people's money, and that was the background, and so he just made a religion out of it. I mean, that's, that's one view, you know? The whole thing about the peep stone and the hat, I mean, it never even happened. It was all just... Uh, I don't want to say too many negative things, but um, I don't necessarily believe that. But what I'm trying to say is that, I mean, he believed that he was talking to angels, and uh, since I have a concept of a gray angel, I don't, I, I cannot disprove this. <laughs> you know what I mean? So um, right. there's some interesting right. possibilities out there. Anyway. Well, I've I've spent the past couple of days kind of working out a few things and trying to understand, you know, the origins of Mormonism more fully, you know. Um, I'm fascinated I have by this view, Nathan. I'm sorry to interrupt you, that that you okay. think that, that um, Mormonism took a nosedive that early. Oh, yeah, yeah. I thought it was after Joseph Smith. You said before. I thought you said before. Yeah, no, I, you know. So he was actually trying to reform Mormonism? Yeah, like wow. from when it started. Because remember, and I heard you talk about this the other day, the Campbellites. But the yeah. Campbellites were basically like, it was like a snake swallowing a giant egg, you know? Like mm-hmm. Mormonism just became the Campbellites. And then at that point, you know, they had all their traditions and they didn't really um, ever <laughs> give them up, you know? They just were incorporated into Mormonism. And... um I talked about that in detail, the, the relationship between, um, it's kind of like um, people uh, being on, uh, sitting on board members of the FDA and then uh, being like uh, in politics, and um, they do that kind of thing. And they, they had the early leaders um, in, the, in the Mormon church and uh, the Campbellite movement, they, uh, they, they switched seats, they was, unless they were being lied to about history. Um, but I talked about that in the worst podcast we ever made, and uh, I said, no, that is nobody's ever going to hear that thing. I've talked about this podcast a number of times. <laughs> Johnny was there. I was completely blank. Can you imagine? Maybe I should release that. Just oh, yeah. The yeah, humor. Uh, so this is what Dave is like. Dave cannot always rant. <laughs> I think we were getting hit by technology. I talk about this. And uh, the most horrible podcast ever. It's not even fit for a room, too. So. <laughs> but but I, I, anyway, I went into detail about that. But I, I don't think anyone was interested when I was talking about because it, it was just too... Did, see, I don't... Nobody even... The people that were there that night, they don't even know who the Campbellites are. I mean, Johnny didn't know. Jabba Ring didn't know. It's like, nobody cares. <laughs> I mean, you would have you would have been uh, probably intrigued by it. I mean... Well, I was listening to it. That's what I'm telling you. Every, no, this is this year. is hidden. I talked about it. I talked about it another time. But this time I went into more detail on it and <laughs> bored everybody. I was just oh. trying to find something to talk about. But anyway, why don't you go ahead with your scripture there? Because we just keep okay. Okay. So, um, like I said, the, so, some of, I take it all with a grain of salt. 
uh, when it comes to the Doctrine and Covenants. And uh, <clears throat> it might be off topic. I, mean, I have a copy of that, you know. I have... Yeah, yeah. Uh, Bought it years uh, ago. We we flood, <laughs> We were told to flood the earth with them. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I buy all that stuff. I walked yeah, into well, a Seventh-day Adventist buy church. At, uh, Value Village, or, you know, there's like a whole yeah. shelf full of them. Well, I walked into a Seventh-day Adventist church and started buying this stuff up. The guy got really excited because everybody assumes I want to convert to their religion. I said, no, no, I'm just, I started comparative religion. <laughs> and they go, oh. Because <laughs> they never had anybody do that before. So I ordered these books right from him. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. <laughs> That's funny. All right, I'm going to read. Listen to the voice of Jesus Christ, your Lord, your God, and your Redeemer, whose word is quick and powerful. For behold, I say unto you, Mattereth not what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink when ye partake of the sacrament, if it so be that ye do it with an eye single to my glory. Remembering unto the Father my body, which was laid down for you, and my blood, which was shed for the remission of your sins. But, no, Mormons aren't Christians, so, okay, forget that. Uh, Wherefore, a commandment I give unto you, that ye shall not purchase wine, neither strong drink of your enemies. Therefore, ye shall partake of none, except it is made new among you. Yea, in this my Father's kingdom, which shall be built up on the earth. Behold, this is wisdom in me. Wherefore, marvel not, for the hour cometh that I will drink of the fruit of the vine with you on the earth. Okay, and that's where it ends. I, I just know that um i'm pretty sure that it ends there but then this is the intriguing part i i actually give credence to oliver cowdery as a prophet and an apostle i mean he um he added a lot of this stuff so i think it's i do think it's important um some of the names you might not know because they're referencing you know the book of mormon um prophets uh-huh. um but i'll just continue uh, and so it says, uh, I will drink of the fruit of the vine with you on the earth and with Moroni. You know, he's that gold statue Masonic symbol guy with the trumpet on the temple. Moroni mm-hmm. uh, is Yeah. Who I'm I, just speaking to the audience here. Go ahead. Yeah, no, that's cool. Uh, Moroni, who I have sent unto you to reveal the Book of Mormon, containing the fullness of my everlasting gospel, to whom I have committed the keys of the record of the stick of Ephraim. And also with Elias... Um, and going back, I have a lot to say about this. When Elias, is that Elijah? When they say Elias, yeah, it's really interesting because that—that's always been my understanding. It's like the Greek rendition of the word Elijah. But um, there's yeah. some things that uh, Joseph Smith talks about, like having basically a spirit of Elias and a spirit of Elijah and the spirit of the Messiah. That they're all kind of different in some ways, but he doesn't go into it a lot, but there's a little bit of information. I need to go back and look at it. Anyways, and also with Elias, whom I've committed the keys of bringing to pass the restoration of all things spoken by the mouth of all the holy prophets since the world began concerning the last days. And also John, the son of Zacharias, which Zacharias, he, Elias, visited and gave promise that he should have a son. So in that case, that would have been Gabriel. So it's not necessarily Elijah, unless Elijah's Gabriel, but it's more of an office of like a forerunner. Anyways, we'll just move on here. Visited um, that he should have a son, and his name should be John, and he should be filled with the spirit of Elias, 
which John I have sent unto you, my servants, Joseph Smith, Jr., and Oliver Cowdery, to ordain you unto the first priesthood which you have received, that you might be called and ordained even as Aaron, and also Elijah, unto whom I have committed the keys of the power of turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, that the whole earth may not be smitten with a curse. And, Dave, we could talk about that. I don't believe that Mormons have that even close to right. But um, I have some insights on that. I'm sure you do, too. And also with Joseph and Jacob and Isaac and Abraham, your fathers, by whom the promises remain. And also, okay, so this is getting to the point now here. And also with Michael or Adam, because we believe that Michael, the archangel, is Adam. Yeah, I'm familiar with him. The father of all, the prince of all, the ancient of days. And also with Peter, James, and John, whom I have sent unto you, by whom I have ordained you and confirmed you to be apostles and special witnesses of my name. And bear the keys of your ministry and of the same things which I revealed unto them, unto whom I have committed. Okay, the wording on here is interesting. I, I've had insights. I can't remember what they are, but the, it's, it doesn't read like what you think. It's not saying what you think it's saying. Anyways, so unto whom I have committed the keys of the kingdom and a dispensation of the gospel for the last time. So he's not saying that he's committed those keys to even, he's not saying that Joseph Smith or Oliver Cowdery have the keys. He's saying Peter, James, and John had the keys of their age, in a sense. Yeah, it says they did. Yeah, so he's talking about them, unto whom I have committed the keys of the kingdom and a dispensation of the gospel for the last times, and for the fullness of times, in the which I will gather together in one all things, both which are in heaven and which are on the earth. Dave. <laughs> that was a demon. Still alive? That was a demon. <laughs> I know. Now man. that's very interesting. People are going to get suspicious that this is some kind of a manufactured podcast. Do you understand the statistical probabilities of that? I that would happen all the say, time. Dave, that just shows you, Dave, you are demonic as well, and this whole show is demonic. That was absolute that? precision timing. Well, that was what we were talking about earlier, where he says, in the which I will gather together in one all things, both which are in heaven and which are on the earth. So that, that scripture gives me a little more insight on what you're talking about, you know. That's the only time I've heard about. that sound all night like that. Yeah, I thought you were getting shot, man. Yeah. That's what it sounded like. And also with all those whom my Father hath given me out of the world, wherefore lift up your hearts and rejoice and gird up your loins and take upon you my whole armor that you may be able to stand the evil day, having done all that you may be able to stand. And this is, he's, he's quoting the scripture, stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth, having the breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, which I sent mine angels to commit unto you, taking the shield of faith wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked and their fireworks, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of my spirit, which I will pour out upon you, and my word which I reveal unto you, and be agreed as touching all things, whatsoever ye ask of me, and be faithful until I come, and ye shall be caught up, that where I am, 
he shall be also. Amen. Mm-hmm. Anyways, so the question that I had, and it talks about, this isn't even the scripture I was thinking of, but there's a point where basically when everything's gathered together, then Christ, I wish I had the right scripture, but it says that he'll basically take all the keys that have been kind of dished out through all the ages and that then he'll present them to the Father. Have you heard that concept before? No, that's a Mormon teaching. Uh, The Bible is silent about that. It doesn't... uh... It talks about the keys in the first century, but then it doesn't talk about them anymore. It talks about the keys in relationship to the um, the disciples, apostles, and the traditional view of Christian, you know, Bible commentators and theologians is, is that has to do with the keys have to do with bringing people into the uh, kingdom and actually kicking them out through excommunication. They have the authority to do that because a lot of times people will read. I believe it has to do with like Matthew 16, Matthew 18, because there's a modern Pentecostal view that has influenced popular 20th century Christianity. This has happened a lot, like Pentecostal exegesis. And the reason is, is because Pentecostalism in the 20th century, the latter part of the 20th century, it became for many people popular Christianity. When you go to a local church, they want to see something happen. Let's get some action going, you know what I mean? The younger people, they, they get bored with the old, you know, liturgy and stuff like that. And so um, they're drawn to these type of churches, and the charismatic movement sprung out of that whole thing. But they have their own unique um, interpretation of Scripture. A lot of people realize this. And these interpretations are modernistic. They did not exist to the history of the church. And so, for instance, um, they'll try to say that the binding and loosing has to do with the demons. It's got nothing to do with an exorcism. <laughs> you know what I mean? But, um... You know, whether that's correct or not, but the church has traditionally interpreted that as uh, bringing people into the kingdom through, you know, baptism and kicking them out. And you kick somebody out, they're they're done. They have the authority to do that. And the Roman Catholic Church has their own uh, take on those passages as well. This is because I'm talking about the Protestant view. You know, they, they talk about the keys um, having to do with the Pope. That's something different there, so... So the Mormons have their own view on it. Yeah, they well. Just speaking about it in an eschatological perspective. The keys. I mean, the the leadership of the Mormon Church claims to have keys. Yeah. And, but the question is then asked: What keys do you have? <laughs> and I mean, if they can't explain what keys they have, they just have the keys. They're in charge. They got a big roll of keys, you know, or like running the show. Denver Snuffer jokes around about this. I've mentioned him before. But um, you know, they talk about what these keys have to do with. No, they don't understand that we're at the point now that I believe that there's a fulfillment of a scripture um, in Zechariah where it talks about, and you're probably aware of the scripture, that how in one month they'll take away three of the shepherds who were like feasting on the flock. Yeah, Zechariah 11. Now, hold it here now. <laughs> okay, what's going right on now, there? What, what's, you know going what's going on there? On That's in the Mormon a... Church. What's that? You know what's going on in the Mormon Church right now? No, I'm just talking about that that passage. But okay, what you see ahead. there, everybody should agree with this: that Zechariah is being commanded to act out a prophetic drama. Okay. Now I've talked about this passage before, but all Christian commentators that I'm familiar with, they will say that what he was acting out was um, 
something would be fulfilled in the first century by Christ because um, you've got a lot of different prophetic views in Christianity, and, and one of them is preterism, and they tend to agree with everybody, but even they agree with that because they believe it was fulfilled in the first century, so naturally they would. I mean, nobody seems to have a problem, so you're trying to say that Zechariah 11 has to do with some... It would be like um, a double fulfillment, apparently? Yeah, yeah, right. Well, it's very interesting because I, I'm i actually agreeing with that. I'm seeing some things there. Because here, here's what's basically going to happen, okay? Um, you, you have what I call messianic scriptures. Uh, you have messianic psalms. I pointed out a number of times. I have to go over the most basic stuff because everything is, like, new to people. But Psalm 110 is referring to both the heavenly Christ and the uh, what I call the earthly Messiah. I'm just trying to avoid the word Christ because people react to it because they're not familiar with the Septuagint, where it calls different people Christ, but not with a definite article. Okay, so if you look at the last verse of Psalm 110, it's clearly not talking about a heavenly Christ because it's talking about an earthly battle. You can make it cosmic if you want to, but he's drinking from a stream because he's fatigued. Now, that's not compatible with the Christian heavenly Christ. So I'm saying, put it this way, you know, Hebrews 7 is clearly talking about, it's, it's referencing Psalm 110. And Psalm 110 is referenced in the so-called New Testament more than any other psalm. So we shouldn't be surprised. But what Christians don't understand is that there's two prophetic figures in Hebrews 7. It's talking about Jesus and comparing him with Melchizedek, and everybody agrees on this. But then it says, and this is even more true, if another one comes like Melchizedek, and that's where they don't get it, because they only have one prophetic figure, the Bible teaches that there's two. Okay? And and that figure is in Psalm 110. So what I'm, 110. So what I'm trying to say is that Psalm 110, like other places, it refers to not just the heavenly Christ, but both of them. And the reason is because this messianic, earthly Messiah, when you want to call him, he's the closest type of Christ in the Bible. Okay, so anyway, as far as, like, you know, typologically, you know, as a type, okay? So now we go back to Zechariah 11, and we're looking at this as a future fulfillment. Now, stop just a second, okay? Because I'm, I'm trying to make this as brief as possible. These things are complex. My view right now is that this earthly Messiah, he's not going to show up like a prophet. He is a prophet, but he's everything wrapped up in one. He's a king. He shows up and throws his weight around and basically becomes king of the world, and, and um, Christians have been prepped for centuries to reject him as the Antichrist. They will, will not be able to process him at all. And he becomes the king of the world, and he only rules for, in my present view, about three and a half years. And basically what I'm trying to say is that Christ um, became a shepherd of the people. In the ancient world, they had a correlation between a shepherd and a king. They had what's called shepherd kings. You see this with um, ancient uh, Egyptian thought. You familiar with this at all? The shepherd kings? Actually, had that kind of terminology. No, but anyway, he, he shows up as kind of like a shepherd king. You know, he's a prophet, he's a priest, everything all rolled up into one. We tend to look at him as a prophet, but um, I think it's helpful to look at him more of as a king. And uh, I believe he's going to shut down the um, <clears throat> people who prophesied this thing. He's going to shut down this war. I believe that there will be a, a, a world war going on. 
And this is actually one of the main reasons why people think he's the Antichrist, because they've been told that this Antichrist figure is going to, you know, make this, see? And what if, what if we've all been psyoped? Do you think the Illuminati is telling us the truth about Bible prophecy? They're not going to do that, because this is the most popular view out there. You know they're going to lie about that, so you're going to hold it. That's going to be a lie. But I'm saying this is what's going to happen, but it's it's different. And it's, you know. So anyway, what I'm trying to say is that he, what happened is in the first century is that Christ, his ministry was very brief. And even the fact that he only lived, I believe he lived 39 years, by the way, but his, his ministry was very brief. So it was all like this short, the main thing he came to do was to actually not even teach. It was to die, you see. He came to die. And then he disappeared, you know what I mean? And it's the same thing with this guy. And he said, I will no longer be your shepherd anymore. He rejected his own people. This is a good example of God abandoning his own people. Because Christians say, well, Jesus was God. Well, thanks a lot, because it says right there that he abandoned you. But you don't believe that. You don't believe what your Bible says. Okay? So I'm saying the same thing. There's a lot of typology between these two characters. And he shows up, does the same thing, has a very brief, quote-unquote, ministry, and, and disappears as well. So that means that I have commonalities with the Mormon interpretation of Zechariah 11. <laughs> see that? Yeah, you can see there how the I have a really good handle of Scripture, because that's a, that's a Scripture for most people. When you start getting all deep typology and talking about prophetic figures that nobody's even talking about, where does all this come from? You know what I mean? Good question. Well, let me just uh, – I got to get back on the road, but I'll yeah. just tell you a little story about what's going on. And it has – I mean, I'm not I'm not claiming to be a scriptorian, Dave. I, I read this stuff, and I'm like, this is exactly what's going on. But it probably means something else, so I don't know. But he does say um, – he says – it. He talks about taking these two staffs, right? And I, I got to study this more. But he, he basically says, three shepherds, in verse 8, also I cut off in one month. And my soul loathed them, and their soul also abhorred me. And it's because they were, like, eating the flock. And then later on it talks about that they, um, it, it was broken in that day. And so the poor of the flock that waited on me, the Lord, or waited on me, knew that it was the word of the Lord. And and these people are oppressing the flock. I think one staff was called favor, and uh, they lost God's favor. Go ahead. Right. So now just I'll tell you, um, there's like doctrine in, in Mormonism about a covenant people, similar to like the Jews, you know, that God makes a covenant, and then they're, they have maybe a hedge that's built up and a tower. I think of like a temple as a tower or – you know, there's just symbolism when it comes to, like, that covenant. But if you turn from it, then you're no longer the covenant people. You know, the curse is worse, really. I mean, um, anyways, Mormons claim to be a covenant people. I don't know anybody else out there that claims to have a covenant with God. Um, but the sad thing is that the covenant, he says in Isaiah, he talks about, changing the ordinances, why breaking the everlasting covenant. Like why have you done this? And and you know, I've seen with mine own eyes the the changing of the ordinances and 
for not authorized purposes, you know, just, hey, we think it should be shorter. We think we, this part is uncomfortable, or maybe we can streamline this whole thing. And Anyways, it's much more than that. It also has to do with oppressing the poor, um, corporatism, you know, like just losing sight and loving money and power. Um, but now getting to my point is that right now, in fact, yesterday, the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles died. And he was 90 years old. And uh, Oh, I saw that on Facebook. Yeah, yeah. So Boyd K. Packer. But a month ago, on uh, the 30th of May, the second in that chain of hierarchy because it's hierarchy is real important when it comes to, you know, they walk in in order. I mean, it totally has to do with tradition and it's ridiculous. Let me say real quick. That's an ancient concept. Again, in Mormonism, uh, I think these people are kind of senile myself. I hate to say it, but basically, oh, yeah, yeah. I think they should be yanked earlier, but basically that's an ancient concept where you have these elders that are running the show and they don't do that in Christianity. And that's the way it used to be and I'm actually saying it should be that way, but the, in our society, there's too many toxins, there's too many pharmaceutical drugs. These guys are, <laughs> they got, some of them got dementia. Right. It's like, it's your they're time standard. to go. <laughs> you know what I mean? Exactly. They're, they're you don't have to the, die first. <laughs> that's exactly right, because it's been pretty well known by people who pay attention. Not Most Mormons don't really realize this, but um, Thomas Real quick, says, the ancient world, they didn't have any environmental toxins, and people... Like Mo, they were more like Moses. They had possession of their faculties, and then they would die. They didn't get like this. We think this is normal, but it, it's it's it didn't used to be this way. Anyway, go ahead. <clears throat> yeah. So I mean, the the president of the church, um, he's in his nineties, and he's he was kind of groomed from a young age. He was called to be an apostle in his thirties or even twenties. I don't know, but, I mean, he's been there for a long time, and that's how you get to be the president, being there for the longest. Um, but he's he's suffering from dementia. You know, he's being coached you go. and controlled. You know why? Because and, the human body is a vessel, and if you live in a highly toxic world, unless you do something very significant to detoxify, that, that's where you're going you're to head up. If you're around that long, you're going to get... That's what dementia is. We know that because they've detoxed people... Uh, like with infrared therapy, and they you can reverse uh, Alzheimer's and, and all that stuff. Get the poisons out of the body. Yeah, it's true. I believe that. So, anyways, there's that. There's those two, and then he's kind of the last man standing before this. Uh, and I'm just going to say it. Um, Russell M. Nelson. He he's the the next guy who's going to he's in line to be the to be the president of the church now. Um, and I've never, I mean, just in the past few years, I just have a feeling about him that he is a wolf in sheep's clothing and I've warned my family, you know, but he's going to take the helm and then things are going to change. I I believe that it's going to happen quick. And even right now with this whole Supreme court thing, and that's not my biggest issue or anything like that with with the gay marriage and all that stuff, but the church has taken this stance similar to the stance they took about blacks and the priesthood, you know, like God will never change or polygamy. God will never change it. But then <laughs> the state makes them change it. And they're like, well, it's time, you know, but they're just, <laughs> yeah. So 
But like the day before, they're kicking people out of the church for saying, you need to let blacks have the priesthood. They're excommunicating people that are in the church saying this. And then then a year later, <laughs> well, it's time we decided that we would pray. And he didn't say not to, so we're going to do this. And there's a lot there. I'm not going to get into that whole topic. But this is a similar, in some ways, it's similar, where the church has taken a stance and saying, we'll never, we're all about families, we'll never do this, and I mean, I see the writing on the wall, this is this is going to happen. <laughs> I mean, I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. <laughs> that they're, you know, they're meeting with Obama, they're passing legislation in Utah about this very topic, you know, they're presenting it, the church is writing the law or whatever they're doing, they're, they're they say they want it done and then it's done. You know, they'll have personal interviews with politicians. I mean, they run Utah. So they, it was like streamlined this legislation. It's going to come back around to where they're going to be put in this position that they're going to have to do what they're told to do. And it's going to change the entire, I mean, they're going to basically like have to turn around and say, well, we know we said this last month, but now, you know, we're going to do this. And you got three of the old timers who've been around and things have changed. Like to me, it seems rapidly, but things have been changing a lot, like over the course of a long period of time. But um, there's now there's a little, there's, there's factions off of Mormonism and there's people that are not happy with what's going on. And they're trying to kind of keep all the money still coming in, you know? So they're trying to make everyone, stay and pay mm-hmm. um, but uh, anyway so I just think Thomas has monsters I don't know what the what the original Hebrew of month do you know what that word is in Hebrew or is there a different translation in another Bible about uh, what a month is because sometimes I mean I'm not going to take a scripture and apply it and have it not be exact because God says what he means but we also don't know what he's saying until it happens. Yeah, no, word for a month? We, yeah, do you know what the word for... Because it says in a month. In one month, he's going to take three shepherds and he's going to basically kill them. <laughs> I mean, he's going to make it so they die. Well, as far as I know, I mean, they could have gone in there and messed that up too. But uh, as far as I know, it's approximately 30 days. Yeah, I mean, it might be a season or it might be something to do with the moon. You know, I don't, I don't know, but it's been 33 days between the first one passing and the one just the other day. Oh, you're trying so, to apply this into uh, to the uh, imminent future or now? Uh, yeah, yeah, actually, like, okay. well, partial. I'm, I'm not. I'm just pick, pulling it out of my butt. To be honest, I, I thought, man, this is going on right now. I do believe that Isaiah is... Oh, I see. You're trying to relate this to the Mormon church. Right. Isaiah... Oh. I read Isaiah, and to me, he's talking about Mormonism. I mean, he's talking about everybody. He's talking about America. But um, he talks about Ephraim, specifically. You know, he's talking to Mormons. You know, they claim to be the covenant people, but, I mean, they have the greatest condemnation because they... (laughs) just went away from him, you know. Anyways, 
Dave, I'm going to drive so that I can talk to you before it gets too late again. And then now okay. Uh, all right. You all right. can go. All right. Call you. I'll call you back. Yeah. All right. All right. Thanks. Are you Are you there, Johnny? Yeah. Okay. Um. You know, people are going to get confused by this conversation. Uh, Nathan is very unusual Mormon. <laughs> he believes that. Um, Mormonism is apostate, and he also believes that, um, well, they've actually been apostate before Joseph Smith became president. And um, he apparently he agrees with me that all religion is false. And people need to hear that opinion of mine, because you don't hear that kind of thing today. Uh, yeah. But, but... Christianity is, is um, among all these false religions. It's it's false because it doesn't hold up to a biblical standard, either either morally. Um, it does not hold up. Uh, that would you know be ethically. It does not hold up as far as practice. Practice is the most essential part of religion. It doesn't get more essential than that, and uh, it, it's not even close. It's not even close. This has to do with what's called ecclesiology, you know, church practice. This is a different religion. People need to be aware of that. And uh, when the... We don't... This religion is a patchwork religion. This is the first time I'm saying this. I'm going to say it again. And the religion of the Bible... Brace yourself. It's gone. It's gone. Get over it. It's it's gone for good. It's gone forever. It's not coming back. There is um, something coming, which we tend to think of a restoration, but really, technically, it's only a partial restoration. Because the old religion of the first century is not going to be fully restored. It'll be partially restored because um, there's something coming that's better. And this has to do with the New Covenant. The New Covenant has to do with restoration. It has to do with Israel. It's such a simple concept. And people are believing Roman Catholic doctrine. The um, Protestants did not correct that error. We've talked about all this before. So anyway, I mean, he um, holds to a very interesting view. I mean, he's not believing all these things that Mormons say. And <laughs> Dave... <laughs> Uh, believes that uh, Mormonism was created uh, for a diabolical purpose. And uh, my views are somewhat fascinating because I believe that um, Joseph Smith is a, is a deliberate, manufactured parody, whether he was aware of this or not, of the coming um, Messianic Prince, Davidic King, whatever you want to call him, Earthly Messiah. You call him the new Elijah. He's all these things. And um, they took all that, and they did it back in the third decade of the uh, 19th century. And it's pointing to what's going to happen. And it's a fascinating religion because they poured all this truth into it. But in my opinion, they mixed it up with absurdities. I mean, there are absurdities in Mormonism. <laughs> There's absurdities in Christianity, too. 
But um, if I was going to tell Nathan something, I didn't. But uh, in my opinion, what he needs to do is realize that there's truth in Christianity that he doesn't have yet. There's a tendency for Mormons to reject Christianity across the board where it differs from Mormonism. He needs to look for gold nuggets in Mormonism. And there's truth in Mormonism that Christians, unfortunately, it's not going to happen. It's just not. Unless you would have a messianic figure show up with all this authority that would say something like that, there's no way they're going to believe this. But they deliberately took these ancient truths that were just a part of a common folk religion in ancient uh, Hebrew Judaism, and they disappeared them. <laughs> and then they um, they reappeared them in the Kabbalah and um, Gnosticism, and even religions like uh, Manichaeanism, and uh, other interesting sects and groups along the way. And they uh, reappeared again in Mormonism, according to my opinion. <laughs> I don't know anybody that's saying this stuff. But I don't know anybody that understands the ancient Hebrew religion very well either. People are always defending Christianity, and Christianity is indefensible. How many times have I used Matthew seventeen eleven to prove this or that? I'll use it right now for obscure purpose. You cannot defend Christianity because um, it's just a hodgepodge of truth and error. It's patchwork religion. It has to be. If Matthew 17, 11, where it says Elijah will come and restore everything, and it can't be referring to John the Baptist because he's dead, and John the Baptist, you can't use Scripture to prove that he restored any... He didn't restore everything in the first century. Come on. He's greater than Jesus and the apostles. Nobody believes that. What are we doing here? Okay, so that means if it's not John, then... Um, <clears throat> That it's prophesying a religion that is so corrupt that Jesus didn't say anything good about it at all. He said everything has to be restored. And I'm saying that's hyperbole. It has to be, you know, exaggeration, because he can't be speaking in absolute sense. And, and they used prophetic hyperbolas to draw the reader's attention. Like, pay attention to this. It's like shouting in your ear. You know what I mean? Like, whoa. Everything has to be restored. Well, Christians are not getting it. Okay? So, um... Do you remember what I just said, what I was going to use to show with Matthew seventeen eleven, Johnny? How you're the Davidic um, figure to to get Christians to believe um, exactly what's going on? Is that what you were going to say there? Uh, I said something obscure, and I can't even remember what it is now. I was going to oh, show something sorry. obscure there. Um, you know, I could re-listen to this and uh, talk about it at a different time, but, uh, okay, what I can show is that um, the religion of the first century, it's gone. Now, I'm going to prove that right now, okay? If you okay. go to Second Thessalonians chapter 2, you see a different religion that does not exist anymore. Please, open your eyes and acknowledge this and move on. Because it's, it's not here anywhere. And the reason it's not here anymore is because that religion was under the, the guidance 
of apostles that appear, as far as we know, they were inerrant. At least they were when they were under a certain state of inspiration. But God was working through them to guide the Christian church. We don't understand this. If you lose these people, that is a massive drop-off. They weren't replaced with anybody, okay? So Paul is saying uh, in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 that yeah. these, these oral apostolic commands have the same authority as written scripture. Look it up. I forget which verse it is, okay? I'm he here, I'm word, at it. He uses the word tradition. And these are the this is the scripture that the Eastern Church and the Roman Catholic Church appeal to uh for this lofty view they have of uh tradition, which is not biblical, but it's actually more biblical than the Protestant position because they just totally ignore tradition. And when I say totally ignore, um that's a bit of an oversimplification. I mean I know church history very well. Okay. And you know, it's well, I just said it. I don't have to repeat it, okay? But basically what the Protestants did is that they... This is what humans do. They overreact to things. And they overreacted to the error of the Roman Catholic Church. And they swung too far the other way. You can see for yourself. Just figure it out yourself. Go to that verse and ask yourself um, if... That's the Protestant view of tradition, because you know perfectly well it's not. How can it possibly be that oral tradition from the apostles has the same authority as written epistles from the apostle? Is that what Protestants believe? No. Is that what Roman Catholics believe? No. They actually hold tradition above Scripture. Now, that's a fact. And uh, the Eastern Church is in error as well. Now, I'm actually saying that the Eastern church and the Roman church is actually closer to the biblical view on tradition. You should be able to see this, but that's a side point. Now, what I'm trying to say is, stop and think about this religion, okay? It has apostolic authority on the same level as a written document. And you got to understand, it's self-evident that that is not your religion today. If you can't see that, then you've got some kind of a massive blind spot. But that was the religion of that day. Does that religion exist today? No. See, it's gone. Now, here's the other thing. Why <clears throat> that religion is dead and gone, it's not coming back. And the religion we have today is not that religion. You've got to stop and think. Obviously, this involved all kinds of information. This had to do with supplementary information. That's why when we look at the text today, there's all kinds of things that we cannot solve. Nobody has the solutions. Okay? It's just like educated guesses and educated opinions. And some opinions are better than other opinions, okay? Like, what does he mean by the baptism of the dead? Because um, his audience understood what he meant because he had explained it before. Ask yourself this question. Is Paul explaining the doctrine of the baptism for the dead to the Corinthians? Is, is he doing that? No. Why? Because they already knew what it was. Do we know what it is? Well, we have a lot of different theories, and I'm saying that one of these theories could be right. 
I think it, there's a good chance it probably is, but we don't know which theory. And why don't we know? Because we don't have an apostle. You see? This is why I keep saying over and over, <clears throat> we do not have an authoritative voice beyond the first century. But what Christians don't understand, they don't understand that we're suffering because of this. I said suffering. Suffering. Okay? Suffering from what? Suffering from loss. Do Christians have a concept of loss? No. They have a sense of superiority. And they always say the same thing over and over again. We have the Holy Spirit. That's all they ever say. And that's supposed to be good enough. You know, the magic wand makes it all better. We have the Holy Spirit. Well, obviously they had the Holy Spirit too. And they had signs and wonders happening that are not happening today on that level. Despite people twisting these scriptures to say, well, we can do the same thing as the apostles and Jesus. I'd like to know where this is going on. Because it's not. So you misunderstood that too. Okay, so... <clears throat> That religion was for that time. Those specific apostolic commands were for a adjunct, complementary, messianic community, which was actually a sect, not a new religion, but a sect of first century Second Temple Judaism. And it was unique because it um, had a different Messiah, and it had... Um, it was under apostolic-inspired guidance, but they still met in the synagogue. Now, let's stop and think for a moment. You know, if you go to a Buddhist temple, don't we call those people Buddhists? I mean, if you're going to the same religious meeting place, that's the same religion. But we say, oh, oh no. See, there, there was a new religion formed in Acts chapter 2. You have to understand. Well, you have to understand that they were still going to... Um, <clears throat> The same, the same religious meeting place, you know, just like Jesus was. And the, the only reason they stopped going there was because um, there was a fulfillment of what Jesus prophesied. The time is coming when they will cast you out of the synagogue. They'll become apostates. They didn't leave until they were cast out. And there's all kinds of theories about, you know, the Essenes and stuff like that. You can't prove any of these things. It's best to just go with what we have. You know, in the written document, I said you can't prove anything with that either. I'm, this is the view that we actually trust these things. Not, we can't prove it. You can't prove anything with ancient documents, okay? But I believe they're trustworthy because of, um, of, a, of a relationship that I have. It's not based on the Bible. It always was based on a relationship. Stop and think about this, Johnny. The Bible, according to what everybody says that has any um, common sense whatsoever, the Bible developed after centuries after the apostles came and went. That's where we got our Bible. At first there had to be a church council and a, a canon developed. Then that's the Bible, you see. So before that there was no Bible. <laughs> okay? But let, let's go even farther back, Okay? Let's say, um, let's go back to the time of Jacob, okay? And how did, how did Jacob test things? 
did he take out his Bible and uh, test things according to, like, the Bereans so he could be a good Berean? No. Did he have any scripture? No. Um, what was it all based on? A relationship. You see that? So, did it change at some point from a relationship to a book with 66 books? Well, for some people it did. And that's where we went astray. It's supposed to be based on a relationship, a trust relationship. If you don't have a close trust relationship, you'll look for something else. And you'll try to find it in a book. And I'm trying to say that God abandoned his own people. The scriptures teach this very clearly. This is not absolute abandonment. This has to do with God hiding himself from his own people. He's done this a number of times in history somewhat curiously. It seems like God is more interested in hiding from his people than actually um, being in the foreground. And that's the story of the Bible, by the way. What happened when Adam fell? You know what happened, Johnny? The first thing God did was hide. You know that? Because he used to meet with Adam every day. What happened to all that? God started hiding. And guess what God's been doing ever since? Hiding. Do Christians think about that? No, they don't. They think, well, God God wants to help everyone, and he wants to reveal himself. But you have to do these things, so you kind of have to help God along, you know. Because God wants to help you, so you can have a better life today. (laughs) Uh, Did God want Esau to have a better life today? Is that why he was predestined (coughs) to... um, destruction before he was even born. He was rejected. It says that um, I hated Esau. Look the text up in Romans 9. This has to do with before he was born. And some Christian simpleton will come along. Well, God was looking down the corridors of time, and he knew that Jacob would be a naughty person, so he decided he's going to hate him. No. What does that talk about that in Romans 9? Look at the context. It says God is doing everything. It's talking about determinism. Remember that, the great free will proof text in the Bible? You know, the one, that single passage that you can appeal to that teaches this great doctrine of free will. Remember that verse? Remember the one that everybody appeals to, to prove the doctrine of free will? Because there must be a, a favorite verse. I'm saying this for a reason. You ever notice that nobody uses a single verse to try to prove the doctrine of free will? You know why? There is no verse. You can look through your entire Bible, and you will not see one single verse or passage or paragraph discussing the doctrine of free will. Because it doesn't exist. What people do is they look at these Bible stories and they say, well, I mean, <laughs> Abraham is praying to uh, to the Father, and he's trying to get God to change his mind about destroying uh, Sodom. And God is reacting to uh, Abraham's prayers. So there's proof right there in the Bible 
that man has free will and God changed his mind. Isn't that proof enough? No. Because um, the only prayers that get answered according to Jesus, and he's the highest authority, is what is in accordance with the will of God. Not the will of man, the will of God. Otherwise, you have a chaotic cosmos. I'm trying to avoid the word universe, okay? And God doesn't answer the prayers of men according to their wishes. They don't even know what to pray for. Remember the Bible tells you that? The Holy Spirit works through men, inspires them, and moves them on what to pray for. And those are the only prayers that ever get answered. Okay? God's will gets done, not the will of man. Okay? Although, if you have insufficient knowledge, it'll look like just the opposite. You know, where's God in all this? You just see all these men, these powerful men working havoc on the earth, you know. Well, that's God's will. It's called a cosmic drama. And God is hiding. He's making man look powerful. <laughs> God likes drama. He's trying to illustrate something. Okay? So what's going on there is that um, everything that Abraham did was God working through him. God was illuminating his mind, and God was responding to him. You know? And that's the way it works. Because prayer, like everything else in, in Scripture, is guess what? It's a gift. It comes from God. It doesn't come from within. You don't have anything within, except for darkness. That's what the Bible teaches. And the reason we've drifted so far is because we abandon the most simple basic concepts of the Protestant Reformation that taught that man is totally depraved. You don't have anything to offer God. You don't have anything within. It's because of the fall. Every aspect of your being is affected. And uh, you don't even know what to pray for. You're ignorant. And this is the condition of man <clears throat> after he's regenerated. And this is why the, the way that Paul is speaking, the way he is, in Romans 7, despite the fact that he's obviously in a very lofty position, that he's speaking very disparagingly about himself, that he cannot even perform a single correct action to please God. He doesn't have the power to do that. And I've said before that man doesn't even have the power to act because he doesn't have the power to sustain his own being. Well, we don't talk about these things in local church, do we? No, we don't. So, anyway, yeah, I'll be talking about this more, and nobody else talks about it. The biblical faith, according to the Bible, it, it's gone. Look at the other passage I just mentioned, Matthew seventeen eleven. If everything is corrupted, then you, it would fall by necessity. You have to have lost knowledge. If you have lost knowledge on a massive level, which is Jesus is prophesying, what is that telling you about the first century faith? I'll tell you what it's telling you about it. it. It disappeared. That's what happened. It's not here. This is something different, okay? And so it's a false religion, but it's the best thing we have going. So, by all means, 
become a Christian because this religion offers Christ and the Bible, which has its own problems. It's the best we have. My whole life has been based around studying the Bible. I hold to a middle view, which is closer to the evangelical view. I do believe that the original manuscripts were infallibly inspired. I can't prove it. Nobody else can either. It's an improvable theory. That's what I believe. I believe they're trustworthy. I believe there's significant corruption problems. But I'm not in some middle position between a liberal view and this um, this absurd myth of the perfect Bible, which some simple-minded people like to promote, um, along with this perfect Bible that fell from heaven in 1611, which is totally absurd because where was the perfect Bible before that? People are not even thinking. They don't want to think. They want to um, latch on to something that makes them feel emotionally secure. This is true. (laughs) I mean, I thought this through. I mean, what is wrong with these people? Because we know there's no thinking going on. So why do they believe these absurdities? Well, that's a different subject. But you can, um, there's a number of angles that you can use to prove the first century faith, it doesn't exist anymore. And so, um, if you want to believe that there was a new religion that replaced the older religion, the Bible doesn't teach that either. It does teach that there was a new sect formed. That's the biblical term. The, the word religion is not in the Bible, and neither is the word cult. Those are words that are given to us for a diabolical purpose, to keep us confused. Notice that Christians don't use the biblical term, sect. Isn't that true? That's, that would be true. And notice they like to use the word cult and religion over and over again. Now, is that true as well? That would be true. Well, you're being psyoped. It's a psychological operation. And people don't even know what's going on. They're just cool. I'm talking about theologians. Everybody is falling for this because the same thing over and over and over. They don't have a sufficiently conspiratorial mind. Ask yourself these questions. This question, do you think people are thinking of the English language as being weaponized by diabolical 16th century conspirators as an attack against Christianity? Let me say it again. Do you think that Christians believe that the English language was weaponized for a diabolical purpose by 16th century occultists as an attack upon Christianity? See why I had to say that twice? Is that what Christians believe? You know how many uh, Christian theologians hold to that view? Zero. You know what that means, in my opinion, on that particular subject? They are entirely clueless. And why is that true? What did I say before? Because they have an insufficiently conspiratorial mind. If you have an insufficiently conspiratorial mind, you'll be very naive about things that have to do with massive conspiracies. Because there's massive conspiracies all over the place. The typical human mind is not able to, to process a massive conspiracy. That's what we call the big lie. The big lie. They can't process that. 
they also can't process the big truth. The fact that there is a cloud behind the moon and the artificial night sky is up there crying out that we live in a system of control, that's the big truth. Okay? You can set the big truth right in the lap of this, these programmed individuals, and they will go off as if um, nothing profound happened whatsoever. It's absolutely amazing. Is it a theory that the um, all the stars in the sky are moving around? No, that's not a theory. Whatever these objects are, they're not still. So the sky is fake, and that's a fact. And that's going to tell you that we're in a system of control simply because nobody's talking about it. Nobody. No institutions, no experts. They're either ignorant as well, and therefore they're sufficiently disqualified, or they're in on it. Now, both is true. At the very top, of course, you have people that they are perfectly aware this is going on, uh, but they're not going to tell you. We don't care about you. But yeah, this world is um, a world of delusion, illusion, and one lie after another. And nothing is as it appears to be. And this is true. And one of the things that we talk about, whether we intend to on this podcast or not, but it comes rises to the surface almost every time. You can see, it's self-evident, the average person, the average Christian, they are absolutely not thinking. There's something short-circuited in their brain. This is obvious. Because when we talk about these things, whatever opinion we, we may have, it becomes obvious they haven't even thought about these things before. That, that we can agree on that. They haven't even thought about it before. Maybe we should start, huh? So, I'm going to go up there and shut this down because Nathan's going to call me back in a while. I'm going to give charge his phone a little bit. But I've wanted to say that for some time. That um, the biblical religion is gone. And I don't hear anybody saying that. And this is a problem because um, it's obvious that it's gone. It, um, you know, you can't have the same religion as the apostles without the apostles. Think about that. Can you have the same religion as the apostles without the apostles? It's like saying, you know, that's arrogant. You know that? Well, we don't need apostolic guidance. We can do just fine. Now, how are we going to do that? Oh, well, we're we're led by a God, and we have the stamp of God's approval, and the Holy Spirit teaches us everything we need to know. Look around. This massive state of confusion. And uh, <clears throat> religion is becoming more divisive. Not less, I'm talking about Christian religion. And it's the um, <clears throat> most divisive religion in world history. And, and that's a fact. And if a person can't acknowledge that, 
they have some kind of uh, emotional bias in their desire to defend Christianity, which is indefensible. I think I said something along those lines, Johnny, when I was going to use um, Matthew seventeen eleven or Second Thessalonians chapter two. But um, the religion we have today is a different religion. I'm using the word religion to communicate effectively. The old religion is gone, and this is a corrupt religion that is indefensible. Don't don't defend it, because you can't use the Bible to do that. It's a hodgepodge, a patchwork religion to hit and miss. Stop deluding yourself, believing that we have all this faith, just because your group is better than all the Christian groups. That's the only way you're going to be able to pull this rabbit out of the hat. That's exactly what people do. They choose a group. Incredibly how simplistic this is. They they choose a church. So this is the best church in town because God led me here. Because God would never lead me to the second best church, so therefore this is the best church in town. Uh, That's called circular reasoning. Okay? And then uh, my denomination is the best denomination uh, because I'm here. That's arrogance, by the way. And so um, we have more truth than everyone else. That's where we're always fighting on Facebook against the other groups that have, you know, less truth than we do. And uh, that, that's how we make it work, you see. Well, what if you're wrong? What if there's another group that has more truth than your group? Well, everything would collapse, wouldn't it? You know what that is? That's a delusion. That's why I talk about Christians are delusional. Because they are. And it's self-evident they are. It's also self-evident that nobody's talking about this. This is very curious. So, on that last podcast I put up in uh, room number two, I talked about the, uh, in the title, said the uh, mirage of Christianity. Because that's what it is to a large degree. Is a mirage. So I got to turn this off here, Johnny, and uh, I'll be talking with uh, Nathan in a bit. Okay. You still there, Johnny? Oh, yeah. Yeah, All yeah. right. I got. I got to cut it down. So I got to charge this phone. Okay. All right. Night, everybody. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.